This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Thursday, October 6th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Mike Ross. In for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the program today, Karen Worsig from Environmental Defense shares findings from their new report about Canada's failure to meet targets for plastic waste and pollution elimination. Milana Kazanavichus will be here describing some issues with guide dog access in Nova Scotia. And Marco Flalo from Double Tap is going to share some of the new tech revealed at this morning's Google Pixel event. All that, lots more coming up on Now with Dave Brown here on Getting with Provincial Politics is the top story. Beginning in outgoing Premier Jason Kenney gave up the leadership role back in the, uh, in the spring after failing to garner more than 51% support in a party leadership vote. Observers say the former leader of the Wild Rose Party, Danielle Smith, is the odds-on favorite to win out of a list of seven candidates. Now, debate during the race to replace Kenny has been dominated by ways the province can assert greater independence from the federal government. To BC next, where Premier John Horgan says violent crime in British Columbia is an issue of concern that touches every community, including the hometown's of politicians from every political party. Horgan waded into BC's contentious crime debate, defending earlier comments by Attorney General Murray Rankin, who said arresting more people is not the answer to reducing crime and keeping communities safe. So I believe the public has a genuine and real concern about what's happening in their communities, my community as well. And, uh, and the communities of the, minute, the Leader of the Opposition and the Solicitor General and, and every other member of the legislature. The Premier says the government is taking a multifaceted approach to fight crime that includes more court funds, mental health and addictions programs, and Police Act reforms. In Manitoba, Winnipeg police have charged five more people after dismantling a protest camp on the north lawn of the Manitoba legislature. Now, officers moved in yesterday and took down teepees and hauled away equipment. Superintendent Dave Dullall says tensions at the camp had been rising in recent days. What we saw was an erosion of cooperation and an increase in both rhetoric and aggression. Dullwall also said the protesters had, in fact, become more aggressive and that public safety had become a concern. We are also um, duty-bound to act when people are at risk, and we don't control when people put us in that situation, and yesterday was a situation where we were forced to act. The protesters said there were no weapons on site, and they only had materials to chop wood and build teepees. Police say they recovered axes, body armor, a spear a machete, and a meter-long club. And finally, to Nova Scotia, 
where a politician in northern Nova Scotia says she's received hundreds of messages from constituents struggling to cope without electricity and running water 11 days after post-tropical storm Fiona slammed into the East Coast. Elizabeth Smith-McCrossan says she's worried about her vulnerable neighbours. My concern is right now we have many seniors and people vulnerable populations, persons with disabilities that have no way of contacting people to let them know they need help and are still without um, safe drinking water. So it's a, it's a real health safety issue. Smith McCrossin says many residents have no access to running water because the pumps in their wells haven't worked since the power went out. Let's get to our daily poll question. We'll get to the daily poll results from yesterday's question. The question was, what is your strategy to keep your devices charged? All your devices charged. Multiple charging stations, portable chargers, multi-port USBs, or I don't care. Uh, 41% of respondents supported multiple charging stations. And uh, we got uh, a tweet from Mike Fair who said, I keep a power bank handy and regularly charge things up. I like the Energrid accessible power bank, but it was expensive. There are power banks which have folding prongs like the uh, Anchor Fusion 10,000. You can get one and leave it plugged in until needed. So that's from Mike. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate that. Uh, portable chargers took 17% of the vote. Multi-port USBs, 25%. And uh, people who just don't care about charging their devices, just do it willy-nilly. 17% of the vote yesterday. Now, let's get to today's poll question. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, hobbies with Don Dickinson a little bit later on in the program. So I'm wondering... As we get out of this pandemic, a time when a lot of people picked up a hobby or maybe expanded on their current hobby, what is your favorite hobby? So if you select the last option here, which is other, we're asking you to please write in your answer in the comment section. But are you into arts and crafts? Now, that can be painting. That can be uh, you know, woodworking. It can be knitting. Wh- whatever uh, has anything to do with arts or crafts. What about music? Maybe music's your hobby. Maybe you've learned to pick uh, a guitar or play a, the piano. What about gardening? I know a lot of people have gotten into gardening. So you can vote on that poll. It is available to you on Facebook at uh, Accessible Media Inc., and on Twitter, at Accessible Media. We'd love to get your uh, intake on that. And let's uh, get the latest from the crew here. Eliza, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Mike. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Um, all right, so hobbies. Did you have one before the pandemic? Did you develop one during the pandemic? For the majority of my life, I have had an insane amount of hobbies. During the pandemic, it definitely... Um, got even more so um, for a few months during the pandemic. I moved back to my mom's house, which is in the middle of nowhere, and I didn't have a car. So all I really had to do was hobbies. So I got really into them. I got into, uh, I picked up the ukulele. I did some baking. I garden. I make some short movies. Um, And some of those I, I still continue to do to this day. But I have to say my favorites and the one that have really stuck around are I'm for some reason really talented at rug making 
I make really, really nice rugs. <laughs> wow. All right. Now, is that something that you just sort of do for, for yourself, for family, or is it something that uh, you could see maybe expanding into a business? I, at the moment, I do it a little bit for myself. It's a really good gift, though. Yeah. So it is like my favorite thing to gift. I choose one person during like Christmas time and I'm like, I'll make, I'll make a rug for you. And I commit to that. And I can only do one at a time because it, it takes forever and it's a lot of work, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I could maybe transform it into a business one day, but I feel like that's really going to take the joy out of it for me. Like oh, okay. I, I do it for fun and for other people, but Doing it at a level like that, and maybe one day I'll change my mind, but it's, it's, it's more of a fun thing for me. Uh, Alex Smythe is back with us uh, today. And, uh, Alex, I want to get your thoughts here on hobbies. Did you have one? Did you develop one? Oh, yeah, I, I have plenty of hobbies as well. Nothing as uh, exciting or, or ingenious as, uh, um, uh, uh, sorry, Eliza going Eliza, yeah, sorry, mind going blank. I'm still getting over a cold. Um, I, I'm very much a nerd, so uh, you know, mine, especially during the pandemic, I started out with with gaming, both you know, card games, board games, sitting around the house with the the parents playing those, video games. I I've always been a bit of a, a nerd, and uh, uh, you know, playing playing those online, they were great during the pandemic, uh, just because you could still connect with friends, colleagues, have that social connection, even when everyone was isolating at home. I still do that to this day. I also really got into Dungeons and Dragons during the pandemic as a way to, you know, lush out some creative juices and uh, connect with uh, uh, friends and try something new and different. I had played a bit in the past, but I really kind of got into it uh, during the pandemic and, and continued to do it every week. That's awesome. I got into, like... I remember when I went to grade school, woodworking, I was terrible, right? Like, I failed woodworking in school. The only thing I ever managed to make was a bookend for my parents. Everything else I made was a disaster. But as I got older, I realized that it was just a confidence thing. And if I was just okay with failing, I would learn from those failures. And so I started making things. I think the, the, the... couple of the things that I'm most proud of with my woodworking, I made a frame out of old hockey sticks to put all the pucks that I've collected through my announcing work in hockey. So it's made out of all these different old hockey sticks, which was kind of cool. And then I made a toilet paper holder or dispenser, if you will. Uh, So some people will have like this long sort of metal stand and they'll have three rolls of toilet paper on there. I took one of the hockey sticks that I used to make the frame and I kept the blade and a bit of the shaft and I put a a, a dowel hole in the bottom. I built a base out of pucks and then you, you remove the hockey stick, you put the toilet paper rolls on it and then plug the stick back on top of the pucks. And if you're a hockey fan, it's kind of a neat little piece that you can put into your bathroom to keep it hockey themed, if you will. But things that, you know, 20 years, 30 years ago when I was failing woodworking, I never thought I would pick up as a hobby and enjoy it. But it's really just a matter of, of just having the confidence of doing it and, what, and accepting yeah. that if you, you are most likely going to fail. But if you're okay with that, you'll learn from it. 
Well, that's awesome, Mike. And I, I shared that uh, failure of woodworking I did in high school as well. I, I think the best thing I made was a sundial that wasn't actually straight and couldn't actually tell the time. So uh, I, I, I'm glad you stuck with it and you, you kind of came back to that passion and were able to build something new and, and something that was special to you. We want your uh, feedback at uh, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can go to our Twitter poll as well there, at Accessible Media, and we'll have the results for you on the show tomorrow. Back to Alex Mythe. He's got your national weather forecast. Weather report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers this afternoon and a high of 14. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, rain expected throughout the day with possible thunderstorms. A special weather statement is in effect with up to 50 millimeters of rain expected and 18 is the high. In Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly sunny with clouds beginning to roll in in the afternoon and the high is 23. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a high of 22. In Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of showers early morning and 22 is the high. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with rain off and on today and even possible snow flurries as well. So watch out for that with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and nine is the high. Over to Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's a mix of sun and clouds and again, possible snow flurries this morning and then turning to rain this afternoon with five being the high. Over to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's sunny and a high of 10. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly sunny and 15 is the high there. Up to Edmonton, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds, which will clear up this afternoon and 19 is the high. In Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 12. In Vancouver, BC, it's mainly sunny, then it will turn to a mix of sun and clouds, with 20 being the high. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's mainly sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds this afternoon, and 21 is the high. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. When we come back, Kirsten Worsig, or Karen Worsig, pardon me, from Environmental Defense is going to share findings from their new report about Canada's failure to meet targets for plastic waste and pollution elimination. That's coming up next, now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown here on AMI-tv. Mike Ross in for Dave Brown, who's away today. A recent report by Environmental Defense says Canada is unable to achieve its goal to eliminate plastic packaging waste by 2030 without substantial efforts by governments at all levels. To tell us more about the report and its findings is Karen Orsig, Plastics Program Manager for Environmental Defense. She joins us from Toronto. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Um, let's start by asking, I think, you know, the, the obvious question here. Um, with a target set by the federal government for eight years from now, why are we going to be unable to meet that target? 
Well, uh, frankly, the target's been set by all ministers of the environment across Canada, including the provinces and territories, as well as the federal government. And I think the problem is we're relying far too much on recycling and not enough on reducing the amount of waste that we produce um, in the first place, which means um, in the packaging world, cutting down on packaging, um, that's throwaway single-use plastic packaging in particular, and uh, focusing on where we don't need it, stop using it, and where we can reuse packaging, we should be doing that. Now, your report, uh, Recycling Failure, also points out provincial policies on plastics pollution can't be relied on to meet that target. Now, is this simply a problem over the lack of coordination uh, by the federal government and provinces? No, really, I think it's a a fact that we cannot address plastic pollution by waiting until it becomes waste and pretending that we can collect it all and recycle it and keep it out of nature and landfills and incinerators. That just doesn't work. We've had decades of trying to recycle plastic. Um, It's not an effective strategy. For most plastics, they can't be recycled. Uh, so really, the solution here is to reduce... A lo- I mean, we focused on packaging. The, pro- the problem of plastic pollution goes beyond packaging. We focused on packaging just to look at policies. It generates about half of all plastic waste in Canada and is probably the subject of the most policies already by the pr- provinces and the federal government. But even then, we'll still have up to 2 million uh, tons of plastic waste in 2030 if we keep going the way we're going today. Is that one of the biggest myths out there that if it's plastic, we put it in our blue bin and it'll get recycled? Is that just the biggest myth? Well, it's what we like to call wish cycling. <clears throat> the, the plastic that's most likely to get recycled is the rigid stuff, like think of bottles, the bottles that you might get detergent in or, you know, frankly, uh, beverages. Uh, that Those are the most likely to be recycled. But even then, it's best if they're clear or white in color. So um, a lot of plastic, it's, there's not much of a, a market for recycled plastic. Because it's so expensive, it's more to, to collect it and recycle it. It's more, it's cheaper, frankly, to just use virgin plastic, which is largely made out of oil and gas. And as we know from all the climate discussions, oil and gas continues to be, you know, f- well subsidized. All the infrastructure for oil and gas is well subsidized. So you know, what we call virgin new plastic is cheaper um, and easier in some ways than uh, relying on recycled plastic. And so that's why it's 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 a tough sell. So th- certain things are recycled. We shouldn't stop using our recycling bins for sure. Uh, but we just cannot rely on that as a solution to get to zero plastic waste. Right off the top, you mentioned that, you know, the policies, it's not just the feds, it's environment ministers right across the province or the provinces, rather, uh, right across the country. Um, Are there any provinces that that are doing well or, or, or better than the rest on plastics pollution? Well, we did a, a report card of all the provinces and and territories, and unfortunately, almost all of them failed. The one um, that you know that got a, an average mark, let's say, or not average for the provinces, but what we might consider an average mark is British Columbia, which got a C. That's the highest mark, and I think the reason British Columbia is doing better than others is that it really does take producer responsibility seriously. And when I say that, I mean it. it the people who produce and sell us plastic 
are responsible at least for house for the stuff used in households, the stuff we buy in our households and throw away. They're at least responsible for collecting it and are expected to recycle it at the end of life. So, you know, British Columbia does have better systems in place uh, to collect household plastics and ensure that they are re recycled w where possible. Uh, but even then, you know, British Columbia, like all provinces, is not do requiring the same of plastics that are thrown away at businesses, um, which is frankly more than half of all plastics that are thrown away. So that's a big gaping hole. And the other thing that, that British Columbia does is it allows the burning of plastic for fuel to count as recycling, which is just a big no-no. We do not want to be burning plastic. It's a filthy process. But also, it's not recycling. It doesn't return plastic. Uh, it doesn't return plastic back to us in that in that form. It becomes pollution in the air, frankly. And so what we need is real recycling, which means we collect whatever can be uh, broken down and turned back into new plastic. We collect that back and we do that with it. Um, and that means we're going to have to use a lot less plastic. What do we... <laughs> It may sound like a simplistic question, and maybe maybe it's just way too vague a question, but what do we need to do to meet these targets, uh, or, or at least to, to head in the right direction here? Because it, 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 seems, it sounds pretty dire to me that there's a lot of these plastics that we have in our daily lives that... We, we can't manage. We just, we can't reuse. We can't do anything with it. So inevitably it, it feels like it's going to end up at landfill anyway. Well, this is it. And I think people shouldn't feel uh, guilty or personally responsible for this. We can't control the, like the stuff that we need to eat, <laughs> you know, the stuff that we need to, to live our everyday lives is often either made out of plastic or typically wrapped in way too much plastic. And we can't control that. So this is why our, we're putting pressure really on governments to change how plastic is used. We're, we're saying to the federal government, the provinces are failing. They're never going to be able to take care of this problem on their own. You've started on a good path of banning certain single-use plastics. You're going to have to continue with the bans on plastics, uh, other plastics that will never be recycled and end up far too much in nature. We're going to have to continue banning plastics. And we're also going to have to focus on setting up systems for reuse because right now it's too easy to create garbage. It's too easy for us to use things once and just dump it somewhere uh, with the assumption that it will be collected and put in landfill. We need to make reusables just as easy, uh, you know, and there are budding services across the country for things like takeout containers and takeout uh, beverage cups, you know, coffee cups and, and uh, pop cups. And, and those kind of things we need to see grow so that they're convenient and affordable for everyone. I, I'm so glad you, you, you said what you said there, which is you can't just sort of get bogged down uh, you know, and, and, and depressed about it and feeling like you're personally responsible, but do what you can to, to, to pitch in. And, and I'll tell you when, when the whole, um, the whole idea of, of reusable shopping bags started, I was just like, oh, come on, really? I'm going to drag you. You really expect me to drag these things around everywhere I'm going. And now, um, we've got, a set of bags in both cars and we've changed that habit completely. I'm seeing some grocery stores that are now using compostable bags for their produce sections, things like that. Those habits can change. 
I'm just one of those guys who eh, needed to really be sort of pushed in that direction. I'm wondering what your impression is about Canadians at large and how open they are to change and, and sort of doing their part, if you will. Well, I, you know, I think your example is exactly the right one. This is what we found as because the pressure was first on bags and bags are a significant problem. Plastic bags, we use way too many of them. We throw way too many away. And as soon as stores started, and, and this often started with municipal bylaws saying you have to charge for bags, uh, as soon as star, stores started to try to encourage people to bring reusable bags, it started happening. It became part of our habit. And people have embraced that largely. I know that Walmart did a pilot before phasing out plastic bags altogether this past year in southwestern Ontario. And they they were quite surprised at how people embraced it. I think people are ready. They rec- We all recognize how much plastic waste um, goes through our lives every day. It piles up in our kitchens. It piles up in our bins, our garbage bins and our, our uh, recycling bins and bags. And so we, we recognize the problem. And wh- what we need is we can't change the world individually by ourselves, but we do recognize that systems that help us change our habits are um, really welcome and really helpful. So that's why we're saying to, to individual Canadians, if you are a bit discouraged by all this, and we hate to put out yet another bad news report about plastic, but if you are discouraged about this, really one of the most effective things you can do is talk to your local politicians, talk to your local member of parliament, of federal parliament, and say that you support bans, that you want to see them expanded, and that you would like to see more accessible, reusable options. And the second thing is, um, you know, talk to your province about why are why they're they're not getting a very high microplastic pollution and really they need to focus on it <clears throat> um, they need to get a handle on preventing waste before before it becomes waste preventing plastic from becoming waste is really the goal for provinces Karen really fascinating conversation really appreciate you being here today and giving us your insight on it thank you thank you very much good to talk to you all right Karen uh, Worsig is the Plastics Program Manager for the non-governmental organization Environmental Defense and spoke to us from Toronto. Coming up after the break, Don Dickinson is going to preview Voices of the Walrus with an article about why some millennials lack an interest in hobby culture. And that's all our, our topic this morning on our poll question. So we'll get into that a little bit more. But first, we've got your Canadian press reporter, Rob Westgate, with your Morning Business Minute. North American stock markets slipped slightly yesterday, a decline that followed the 48 hours of positivity, which kicked off the fourth quarter. Toronto's S&P TSX lost 136 points, closing at 19,235. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dipped 42 points, down to 30,274, while the Nasdaq inched lower by 28 points to 11,149. Overseas this morning, where Japan's Nikkei finished up 191 points at 27,311. Meantime, in Hong Kong, the Hang Seng ahead of closing is down around 50 points. Canadians may see a jump in the number of businesses applying surcharges for credit card use as restrictions on the practice lift today. And Suncor Energy says it's selling its wind and solar assets to Canadian Utilities Limited for $730 million. And the loonie is trading overseas this morning at 73.51 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate.
Welcome back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave. Voices of the Walrus airs Sundays at 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-audio and features readings and commentary from the Walrus magazine. Producer Don Dickinson is here with us now to tell us about some of this week's articles. Good morning, Don. Hi, Mike. It's unusual seeing you there. <laughs> I know. It's uh, been a while. Great to catch up with you. Um, we're going to begin. This is kind of neat. Uh, last weekend, I took uh, part in the uh, Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer event here in Toronto. It's a day-long uh, road hockey tournament. Uh, they raised uh, $2.6 million at that event for the Canadian uh, Cancer Society and for uh, Princess Margaret uh, Cancer uh, Foundation. And at one point, I was talking to one of the organizers, and this guy walked up and started asking some questions. And the lady looked at him and said, why do I know you? I, I, I feel like I've seen you somewhere before. And he said, ever watch the great Canadian baking show? That's it! Uh, so he was a contestant on the fifth season of the great Canadian baking show. So it sort of jumped off the page to me today when it said uh, that's the first article we're going to talk about, which is yeah, a review yeah, yeah. Uh, by uh, Alex Tesser. Uh, the, uh, now, one thing here, the, Alex says that there's a bit of a flaw to the recipe of the show, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is uh, this is this gentleman's opinion, so you have to go with it. Um, basically, he he's saying that the British show is a huge success, huge success, uh, and the Canadian show didn't quite tap in to the essence of what made the British so show a huge success, right? Um, so for those who don't know what, uh, I mean, I, I can't believe that there's people that don't know, but for those who don't know, basically what it is, is over uh, the Great Canadian Baking Show and also the British version, uh, over a course of several weeks, an array of charming, regular people, with the emphasis on regular, compete in challenges that test their skills in different aspects of baking, from simple loaves to busts of celebrities made of cake. I didn't see that one. <laughs> so each episode is divided into three parts. There's a signature bake, a technical challenge, and there's also a showstopper, which is where they can go really nuts with very extravagant bakes. And uh, so the British show has been going on for a while now and has been a huge success. All right. So what makes this the, the, the British version of things, uh, you know, so much, so much better, so much more successful? Okay, well, there's a lot of opinions on this. <laughs> but basically, the show uh, pulls in. Now, I couldn't believe this when I read these stats. One of the UK's most watched series, it attracts 14 million viewers. Wow. Uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's why that guy's saying, have you, yeah, have you watched no the kidding. show, right? Uh, but also inspires almost a mania when it comes to fans. Um, there, There's even a, a great British Bake Off musical in the works. <laughs> and uh, it's basically they're passionate about it. Now, there's a lot of different things. Basically, it comes down to the, con the contestants. It's a three-part thing. The contestants, the hosts, 
and the judges, okay? So this particular article is dealing with the fact that he feels that the contestants aren't tapping into the same um, regularity of, of what makes the British show so very, very popular, and also the diversity of, of the British show. In the case of the hosts, I thought it was very interesting because he was saying that, you know, the, the Brits um, have a very different sense of, of, of wit, right? And, uh, and, and some of those hosts have been honing, they're, they're pulled from uh, comedy series and whatnot, and they've been honing their comedic skills for a great many years. Right. And they come, they come off with, with really interesting comments just like that, you know? And, of course, the final thing is the judges. Now, you've got people like Paul Hollywood in the British show, uh, who's, uh, I think is absolutely lovely. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so do many of the, uh, British fans, but also, um, he, he's very, um, he's very judgmental. I mean, he, he is the essence of judge, right? right. So if he doesn't like something, he's, he's really telling it like it is. Right. And, uh, he's very sparing with his approval and, this particular article is saying that the Canadian show is just a little too Canadian in that we're just a little too nice. Ah. We do, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah. Th those judges, those judges are not coming out and saying, you know what? This is God awful. This is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> are you a baker? Oh, listen, I mean, the occasional pie. I wouldn't call myself a baker. Yeah. Are you? No, no, I, I'm the same thing. I, I, I made a pie, made pumpkin pie. Going to take a crack at apple pie this week for the first time. Uh, when it comes to baking, I think the, the biggest success I've had uh, have been uh, some meat pies. Some, I've made some quiches. But I mean, those are, those are so, those are like, those are easy baking things, right? Like, it's not like I made my own pie shells. I bought pie shells and I just made the, oh, made well, the filling and threw the filling baking. in. Oh, that's not baking. And then I, and I made, baking. and I made cookies. I made uh, shortbread, <laughs> shortbread cookies and peanut butter cookies uh, and, and decorated my own cookies, uh, icing and everything else. So uh, I, I've done that. But yeah, when it comes to... I, I just think back to my grandmother and watching her like roll out the dough and and make her her pie shells and lie, like it was just it was art it really was and it's not my thing not a hobby of mine uh, that's where we're going next uh, for the second article Alicia Sani with this one uh, sought the help of an algorithm to figure out how she could spend spend her free time it made her question her generation's relationship with leisure so. Let's talk a little bit about social media and the, the, the role it played in a millennial search for a hobby. Yeah, I, I found this uh, psychologically very interesting, this story, you know, and I was listening to Eliza earlier on when you were chatting with her. Uh, I'm not sure her, of her age, but I think she's the exception to the rule when it comes to millennials because, well, let me start by saying that the author says that in the first several months of the pandemic, I remember, this is a direct quote, I remember calculating the weekly hours I'd save by not commuting, uh, 
commuting and asking myself how, how I would use that time more effectively. And naturally, and this is the, 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 the point about the uh, social media and everything, naturally I relied on Instagram <laughs> to help me with my identity crisis and my search for a hobby. I started by aggressively com- completing an adult coloring book while everyone around me made body-shaped candles. And so a lot of these millennials, they're tying in their hobbies with things that they can actually post, okay? Right. So it's not necessarily a hobby like you and I uh, of our era would have. Um, although I have I have fallen uh, 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 to this as well because uh, I know when I started doing my paint by numbers during the pandemic, which I've always loved, I, mm-hmm. I you know, ever since I was a kid, uh, you know, mom used to shove a paint by numbers in front of us at the cottage and keep us quiet for like three hours, you know. And uh, and and then all of a sudden I found myself posting this, which I never thought I would do in a million years, you know. <laughs> I but, got uh, in, she I, was saying it's tied in. I got into the uh, the adult coloring books too. Um, I, I really enjoyed those. Photography is another one, uh, another thing that, that both my wife and I have both really gotten into. Um, the article uses the term serious leisure. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, so she was uh, actually talked to experts and uh, Robert Stebbins, a professor emeritus of sociology at the University of Calgary, who specializes, believe it or not, in leisure studies. There is such a field There you go, Mike. Uh, Serious leisure, a term he coined, is the systematic pursuit of an activity like rock climbing or singing that usually requires a special skill. In other words, we need to put serious effort into a hobby in order to to reap its rewards over time. Just like we dedicate our time and energy towards a career, committing ourselves to serious leisure activity is one of the keys to achieving a fulfilled life. So he was saying, you know, because of the fact, so you got to, you got to connect the dots here. Yeah. Because of the fact that we're posting these activities, then the emphasis has been upped. All of a sudden, we can't just be, you know, mediocre at these things. We have to be really good at these things because now we're posting them, right, on social media. So then all of a sudden, these things that we would have done just casually in our time without the necessary, without necessarily posting, we are now doing and we want to be really good at it. And that takes work. And millennials, you know, because they're in a different uh, economic uh, uh, era than we were, they don't have that time. They don't have that time to excel at the things that they would that we would have had time to excel at. Right. Come on, Eliza. It's interesting, eh? Come on, Eliza. Get get better at like managing your time, would you? So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> She's making rugs. I'm over here drawing like cat coloring books and stuff. She's making rugs. I, <laughs> she's doing a lot better than I am. Uh, Don, great to catch up with you. Thank you very much for the preview. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take Don, care. You too. Don Dickinson, producer of the reading program Voices of the Walrus. It airs Sunday, 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-audio, featuring readings of some of the best analysis and commentary from the pages of The Walrus. Coming up, community reporter Blaine Deutscher is here to share details about a blind bowling opportunity in Regina, Saskatchewan. But first, now that Elon Musk seems to be interested in rebooting his purchase of Twitter... What's his plan? Here's reporter Dave Packer with Tech Trends.
Siva Vaidyanathan is a media studies professor at University of Virginia. He says Elon Musk has long complained that Twitter overregulates the content that gets posted there. Fed up with Twitter. I mean, he was frustrated with the fact that a lot of his friends who have very edgy, controversial positions uh, were finding their tweets downgraded or deleted. He's vowed to roll back content moderation policies once he's in charge. But Vadi Nathan says that could open the door to more harmful content. Remember, the customers are actually the advertisers. And advertisers do not like having their products associated with racism, associated with genocide, associated with harassment, associated with sexism. Musk has also said he would allow former President Trump back onto the platform, though Trump has said he's not interested. With Tech Trends, I'm Dave Packer, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave, who is away today. It's time to check in with one of our community reporters. Blaine Deutscher is joining us from Regina, Saskatchewan this morning. How you doing, Blaine? I'm doing all right, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. It's been a while. It has been a while, yes. When was the last time we spoke? Gosh, um, was it Calgary? Or, no, or was it blind you, hockey? You were at the blind hockey in, in 2018, I there think, we was go. the last year. Oh, man. Yeah. It's been a while. Time flies Feels like forever. Yeah, well, it's great, uh, great to have you here. Great to have you in this role. I'm really happy for you. And uh, let's get to it here. Your first item uh, today is a community fundraiser in Regina. So, tell us more about the Mega Bounce Run and what their fundraiser is looking to support. So, yeah, it's uh, the website describes it as a, a time to have a lot of laughter, bring out the inner kid in you. Uh, it's got not, it's an obstacle course and there's nine different large bouncy, uh, things you do during the obstacle course. So, um, I saw that and, and I thought, wow, this, this, this is fun because who wants, you know, who you see all the kids playing on the bouncy houses and you're like, I want to play. And, uh, it's raising money for, I think it's with the Regina kids, program mm-hmm. um and it's it's a great event for teams um i was thinking of going but i was like you know i i think i would prefer to go with teams they actually highly recommend doing it as a team just because it makes it more fun it's it's like a race and whatnot it starts off at the connexus art center and, and wraps around and comes back so saturday morning at i think it was nine in the morning okay cool um, do you do you have information on how people can join up, how they can participate? Um, I think the website was megabounce.ca. Mega yeah, run. actually, I've got it here. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So Saturday, um, October 8th, uh, 10 a.m. Eastern to 1140 a.m. with groups leaving the starting line at 20-minute intervals. And you can uh, get information a couple of different ways here. You can email info at megabouncerun.ca or you can visit the website at www.megabouncerun.ca. And you can also uh, make a donation there as well. Um, Your other item here today is about uh, blind bowling. 
and the Lions yes. Blind Bowling. What's uh, what's the latest there? What can you tell us about the Lions Blind Bowling League? Well, it's that time of year again, and uh, October 15th at the Golden Mile Bowling Alley here in Regina at 11 a.m. Uh, we've got bowling for, for blind people from uh, in the sports world, B1s to to B3s. Uh, and then the Lions, they uh, they can pick you up if you need a ride. Um, and you just got to email Thelma. And I think her email was owatchme um, at yahoo.ca. And she's the provincial bowling coordinator for Saskatchewan Blind Sports. But she can get you connected with the Lions Transportation. They spot the uh, us bowlers to uh, know what pins we knock down. And it's just a lot of fun to get out. And we have some themes throughout the year that we do for fun. Um, and it can be competitive or it can just be a fun hour and a half to uh, to bowl. And um, we actually bowl. Before COVID, we did a media bowl every February, which uh, it's a lot of fun. You get to see the media. You uh, you compete against them. And, and it's just a lot of fun. But the kickoff to our sports season is here, and October 15th is our first kickoff for the year. Are you a bowler? I am. I'm. Uh, that's one of my sports I've been doing since I was, I think, grade five. Are we talking? Um, are we talking five pin or ten pin? I wish we did ten pin, but it's only five. I find the the, the toughest thing about the uh, the ten pin is. You have to have the, that one ball that's just comfortable for you. And it, it once you have it, then you're standing there waiting for it forever right. sometimes, right? Like it's it's kind of that that's that's the annoying part of it. I love the fact that there are more pins to hit. Um and and the the balls it, it's kind of fun to throw that and, and put a little bit of a spin on it, if you will. Yeah. But at least with the five pin, you can grab any ball. It doesn't matter. Uh, they're all the same, and there's no difference in weight or anything like that. So I find it a lot more. Uh, it's just more efficient. There, there actually is a slight difference to the weight, and some people actually do have oh. their own bowling balls because they're just the right weight. They want a little heavier five pin ball. They want a little lighter one. Okay. Um, so there, because if you think about it, when kids ball bowl uh, with five pin, they have. They're different colors from what I understand, but uh, I've noticed sometimes I'll pick up a ball and go, wow, this one's super light. And the next ball's like, all right, there's some weight to that. But right. Now, here's the big question, though, because not everybody has their own ball, but do you have your own shoes? That's when you know that someone is a really like big-time bowler. I did have my own shoes, ah. and then uh, when I, because I, I used to live out in Calgary, and I kind of stopped bowling for a while, and and now I'm back. I'm like, well, I'll pick it up. Um, but I'm not super competitive with bowling. Like hockey and golf are my two sports. Right. I want to try baseball as well. But um, I, I got to go out east to play beat baseball, I think. But I want to try it. So that's. Well, yeah. a couple of really cool events here. Thank you very much for telling us about them, Blaine. Really appreciate it. And uh, great to catch up with you again. It's 
It's always fun to connect with you, Mike. All right. Have a great day. Uh, Blaine, well. Blaine telling us about uh, bowling happening in Regina. It's the Lions Blind Bowlers. And in Regina, it's starting October 15th at 11 a.m. He mentioned that the uh, Golden Mile Bowling Alley. And if uh, you're interested, you can email me. That's the letter O. Watch me at yahoo.com. Send an email there. It's uh, five pin bowling. And uh, you can also get information on the bowling alley itself by going to goldenmilebowl.com. Goldenmilebowl.com. And Blaine is our community reporter in Regina. You can find out more information about everything Blaine was just telling you about the dates, the times, the websites by going to our blog, and uh, you can get information there about all the stories we bring you here on the show. That is ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. Let us now get to a little bit of news. And I'm going to start uh, with a story that uh, actually broke this morning. So this is not in our script, guys, but uh, just off the wire, Telescorp says it will not be sponsoring Hockey Canada's men's hockey programs for the 22-23 season, including the upcoming World Junior Tournament. The move comes as Hockey Canada continues to defend its leadership and critici- or amid criticism over the handling of the sexual assault cases that have been brought forth and how money was paid out in lawsuits. Telus says it's deeply disheartened by the lack of action and commitment from Hockey Canada to drive necessary cultural change. It says it's committed to enabling systemic change to make hockey safe for all. Now, this decision by Telus follows similar announcements by Tim Hortons and Scotiabank. Heading overseas, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is calling for more international support. The Forum, the Organization of American States, meeting in Peru. Speaking via a link from Kyiv, Zelensky urged the delegates to further isolate Russia on a national level. Do not allow your economies to be used to finance criminal war and war crimes. Do not associate yourself with those who will inevitably be condemned by the international community. On the international level... He called for greater support, particularly in votes in the U.N. General Assembly. Tom Rivers, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. Meanwhile, sprawling Xinjiang is the latest province in China to be hit with sweeping COVID-19 travel restrictions. Trains and buses in and out of the region of 22 million people have been suspended as China further tightens control measures. Likewise, passenger numbers on flights have been reduced to 75% capacity. A notice from the regional government said the measures were enacted to strictly prevent the risk of spillover of the virus, but gave no other details. The new restrictions come ahead of a key Communist Party Congress later this month. I'm Karen Chamas. Still in Asia, for the second time this week, North Korea has launched a ballistic missile. Just as the United States, along with 10 other nations, issued a statement condemning North Korea's Tuesday morning launch of a long-range missile which flew over Japan... And seven other missile launches since September 25th, North Korea launched yet another missile. This one headed toward its eastern waters. The volley of missiles comes as the U.S. and South Korea conduct military drills in those waters. At the United Nations Security Council Wednesday, Russia and China making it clear that they again would veto a U.S.-led effort to strengthen sanctions on North Korea over the provocations. Dave Packer, ABC News. 
The OPEC Plus Alliance of Oil Exporting Countries, which includes Russia, has announced it's going to cut back production by 2 million barrels a day starting in November. And experts say that decision is likely to hit the pocketbooks of consumers. Reporter Alexis Christophorus explains. For a few years now, because of the pandemic, these 33 countries that make up OPEC Plus have been enduring relatively low oil prices. So what they're trying to do with this production cut is lift the price of oil on the world market. They say that will help to stabilize world economies, and they think it will also incentivize investment in the industry. But what it's going to probably wind up doing is sending gas prices higher around the world. Oil is trading well below its summer peaks because of fears that major global economies will sink into recession due to high inflation, rising interest rates and energy uncertainty over Russia's war in Ukraine. And finally, the governing liberals and MPs from the NDP and Bloc Québécois have defeated a conservative private members bill that would have changed the criminal code. MP Kelly Block's bill sought to protect health professionals from having to directly or indirectly participate in medically assistance in dying. Canadian press reporter Nicole Reese has more. Block's proposal would have made it an offence to intimidate or fire a healthcare worker who refuses to provide a medically assisted death or provide a referral for the service. The Liberals maintain there is nothing in their legislation that forces a health professional to provide or help to provide the procedure if it conflicts with their personal beliefs. Many Conservatives oppose the government's handling of medical assistance in dying and feel there are not enough protections for health care staff. That's it for hour number one here on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. If you want to get in touch with the show, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us on AMI's Facebook page at Accessible Media Inc. or on Twitter at Accessible Media. You can email us at feedback at AMI.ca or leave us a voicemail at 1-866-509-4545. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross, filling in for Dave, who's away today. It is Thursday, October 6th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Melena Casanavichus will describe some issues with guide dog access in Nova Scotia. And Mark Aflalo from Double Tap shares some of the new tech revealed at this morning's Google Pixel event. But we kick off the hour with your regional news. With critical injuries appears to be a rare example of predatory behavior by a black bear. Ellie Lamb of the Get Bear Smart Society says that by knocking two women down, then staying close to them for more than an hour, the large male bear was likely treating them as food. RCMP officers shot the bear dead Monday evening as it appeared to be guarding the injured women and could not be chased off. Lamb says such an attack is extremely uncommon and in most encounters with people, bears usually yield. To Alberta... Albertans will learn today who their new premier will be. Voting is to wrap up by the United Conservative Party members to choose a successor to Premier Jason Kenney. Kenney announced in the spring he was leaving after receiving 51% in a party leadership vote. There are seven candidates in the race, including four former members of Kenney's cabinet. Former Wild Rose Party leader Danielle Smith is the perceived front runner. 
A lawyer who hired a private investigator to follow a Manitoba judge is set to appear before a Law Society of Manitoba hearing panel in February. John Carpe, president of the Calgary-based Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, hired a private detective in the summer of 2021 to see if Manitoba Court of Queen's Bench Chief Justice Glenn Joyle uh, was following COVID-19 public health orders. At the time, Joyle was presiding over a constitutional challenge brought by Carpe's organization, arguing charter protections should make Manitoba churches exempt from public health restrictions. The Law Society website says Carpe faces professional misconduct charges, including failure to treat court with candor, fairness, courtesy, and respect, undermining the public respect of the administration of justice and breach of integrity. In Ontario, public health in Peterborough is warning the public of high COVID-19 case rates. Medical Officer of Health Dr. Thomas Piggott says the region is experiencing some of the highest infection rates in the province. He's encouraging everyone to be mindful of vulnerable residents ahead of the upcoming long weekend. The health unit is recommending that people mask when interacting with people outside their households and avoid gathering indoors. To the Atlantic region, New Brunswick Power is seeking an 8.9% increase in power rates for all its customers. It, improved, it approved, rather, the regulator, uh, a, the increase would come into effect, if approved, on April 1st next year. The chief executive of the Crown-owned utility says no, uh, New Brunswick Power has taken steps to ensure the rate increase is as low as it possibly can be. It is the utility's largest rate increase application since 2007. And finally, Heather Taves says her life has been reduced to dim drudgery since the lights went out on September 24th after post-tropical storm Fiona barreled through Prince Edward Island. The Stratford PI resident says her routine also includes sleeping until the sun comes up to save on batteries, making toast and coffee on the, ba- on the barbecue, checking on her older neighbors, charging her cell phone in her car, and heading to the library in Charlottetown with her daughter. She says the storm has also frustrated her efforts to start a new business. More than 8,000 customers are still without power on PEI after Fiona yanked down power lines across Atlantic Canada. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Time now to welcome in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Good morning, Brock. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you very much. Getting uh, that much closer to the NHL season openers, and we'll talk a little bit about the NHL in a few minutes. But leading off the conversation today with Hockey Canada, and I'm telling you, man, I'm hearing more and more people who I never thought would be critical of Hockey Canada now on the front line saying, you know what? Enough is enough. Read the room. Um, it's time to, to basically, you know, I heard Tim McAuliffe on Sportsnet say, I'm not a burn it to the ground type guy, but burn this to the ground and start anew. You, you, need, 
new leadership at Hockey Canada. This, of course, all stems, Brock, from the continuing scandal around a couple of slush funds that were being operated by Hockey Canada to pay off uh, settlements um, for sexual misconduct, sexual assaults that were perpetrated by Hockey Canada players and or, uh, you know, alleged uh, management uh, over the years. This scandal just will not go away, and now their big backers are stepping away, Tim Hortons, TELUS, uh, and Scotiabank as well. Yes, and uh, we've also heard that uh, Quebec Hockey has said they will not uh, fund them as well. But the thing that um, made me want to bring this to the show today was I heard some of the um, testifying done by Andrea Skinner, who is the new chair of the board, who is supposed to bring change, quote-unquote. And there was a couple of things that she said that was very, very interesting to me. And I'll start by saying that uh, she was asked, um, is the people that are in the right place right now, so Scott Smith, who's leading the charge, is he the right guy for the job? She took a long, long time to answer this, Mike, and she said, yes, he is the right guy for the job. And he has the right people in place. Then she went on to say that now would not be a good time for these wholesale changes. It would be damaging to hockey. Then the most telling thing of all that she said when asked, what grade would you give him? She gave him an A. And to me, I'm like, how? even though this guy's been in the job not very long, he took over, you know, for Nicholson and all that. I, how do you give this guy an A? even though he's been in for such a short time. Like, it just baffles me. How do you do this? And you're supposed to be the person that changes it. I I don't get it, Mike. I just, I don't. I just don't get it. Where I sort of check out is um, when Scott Smith says, we, you know, the leadership here at Hockey Canada, we want to be part of of, of changing the culture. Um, But at some point, you have to sort of look around and, and listen to what people are saying. And people are saying, no, we don't want you to lead this change. We do not trust you. And, and now when, when, when you have uh, minor hockey federations like Quebec that stand up and say, no, you know what? We're not funding this either. We're not sending you the money. It's not happening. Uh, I, I, it, it takes that first domino to fall, right? And it's the same thing with corporate uh, backers. So, you know, Tim Horton, Scotiabank, TELUS now, uh, you wonder how many others are going to uh, step forward. And, and to be clear, while the hockey federations are withholding their money, you know, carte blanche across the, 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 the spectrum here, the, the corporate sponsors, from what I understand, are withholding their support of the men's hockey events, the World Juniors, uh, I would imagine the world championship in the spring, they still want to support para hockey events, women's hockey events, uh, et cetera. But they want to stay away from the men's events, which, I mean, let's face it, the world junior championship is sort of the, the crown jewel of hockey Canada properties. It's the one that brings in the most money, but you know, I'm with you at this point. You just have to, you have to understand that 
you don't have that support from your own members anymore. The grassroots no. hockey people in Canada do not trust the leadership of the organization, and it is time to move on. Yeah, and I've heard this more times than not over the last 24 to 48 hours since the hearings. It's almost like Hockey Canada decides we're untouchable. Nobody can touch us. We're invisible. We're Hockey Canada and we're big bad. And then all the sponsors decided, yeah, well, let me show you how untouchable you are when we take all of our money and say, no mas, we're not doing this anymore. We're not supporting this. And I am so thankful that the sponsors, as you point out, have said, look, we're still going to support women's programs. We're still going to support the para ice hockey program because those are programs that need to be supported. But the World Juniors, as you as you called it, was the crown jewel or is the crown jewel. Well, this is the World Juniors is the the event that sort of brought all this on. With yeah, you're right. What's going on? And so that to me, this isn't the crown jewel because it is, if we can call it this, it is the problem child because this is where we're learning the problems are coming from. So this is this is a big deal. And for someone like Andrea, who's supposed to come in and, and be changed, and she looked baffled, scared, didn't know what to say when questioned. Did you not think when you were testifying that you were going to be asked these questions? Because I knew it. And Bob Nicholson, guess what? You're up next after the Thanksgiving when they do this again. And you are going to be grilled to no end. If Andrea was grilled, certainly Bob Nicholson's going to be grilled as well. Uh, it's going to be uh, very interesting to see if they continue to sort of stonewall and, and, and sort of put off what so many people feel is is not only the 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 inevitable but the right thing to do uh the to uh, to just basically tear it down and rebuild because they've just lost the confidence of members at the grassroots level um let's talk a little bit more positive about hockey though because mm, we're yes. uh, we're less than a week away from the start of the regular season in the NHL you and Dave are going to be talking about the Canadian teams uh, next week and giving us a little bit of a preview there. But we can talk about the U.S.-based NHL teams and a couple of the teams, uh, Brock, that are sort of jumping off the page at you as teams to watch this season. So uh, we'll start in the Atlantic Division, and I do want to see what does Tampa Bay do. They, they've been so good for so long. Is there going to be a drop-off? They've added, you know, Corey Perry this year to a two-year deal, which I don't mind that as a, as a deal. They've got good goaltending, good defense. But at some point, what is this team going to be? Is there going to be a drop-off? We as Leaf Nation hope that there is, but they are such a fun team to watch over and over again. Uh, the other team that sort of jumps out at me is Colorado coming off of a Stanley Cup. What are they going to look like? Uh, are they going to be hungover a little bit? Maybe, maybe not. They've got good talent as well. The one that puzzles me the most, and we've talked about it a little bit, is Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a team that's deciding we're not in a rebuild, but we're not in a championship mode, and they just keep adding veterans and signing guys. And I'm just puzzled by what they've done, and I'm interested in your thoughts on any American teams, but specifically Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh, I think, is um, they're past their best before date as far as, I think, being a Stanley Cup contender. Way past. 
but they're but they're still mm-hmm. going to be a competitive team, right? Like I think they're a playoff team. Uh, I think they 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 manage to get themselves back in there. I think Sidney Crosby, he's still a great player. I think Malkin, uh, the fact that they bring him back, he's going to be he's going to be comfortable. He's happy, not worried about the contract anymore. Um, but I I do agree with you when it comes to Tampa Bay. Though there have been changes, they've lost some bodies, some important bodies. They've still got Andre Vasilevsky in net. And if you got him in net, like I hear this all the time about how so many teams around the NHL don't have elite goaltending. Tampa Bay, they have elite goaltending. So yeah. I, I have no qualms about saying that the Tampa Bay Lightning are going to be uh, a fierce competitor and are going to be in that mix when it all uh, comes down to it. I'm very curious to see the New York Rangers. And are, are, do we get uh, the Shesterkin of last year? Does he come back just as strong, or is that a flash in the pan? And uh, let's see what the bread man can do uh, in, uh, in New York with, uh, with year two of Shesterkin on, you know, in the big spotlight and see uh, what uh, kind of rebound we see there uh, from the Rangers. Out West, I don't know, man. Like, Everybody seems to be talking about Vegas and that they're going to be the dark horse favorite coming out of the West. And California seems to continue to struggle. So I don't know. I think I look at Colorado and say, you know, they haven't, they're not that much different from last year um, with the exception of a change in goal. Are they able to just be as competitive? Nathan McKinnon's got his new contract and he rolls along. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. And again, sometimes when you get the big contract and my concern sort of, if I can call it that with Nathan McKinnon is when you get the contract, do we get a year of a, of a drop off? Because it's like, oh, do I have my money and, I, and I've got it? Do I expect that from him? No, he's Canadian. He, he bleeds hockey. But when you do get that amount of money, you do have to kind of wonder. So and on top of that, as I mentioned earlier, with the Stanley Cup, you know, the hangover, who knows? But that is a very, very talented team. The other team that I'm interested in is Florida to see what did they do this year um, with Matthew Kachuk. Um, you know, uh, they, they have Sergei Bobrovsky, but who knows what he'll be like this year. So there's lots of interesting storylines to keep an eye on that is outside of the Canadian market. And I know as a national show, we all focus on you know, uh, the Canadian markets, but it is, there are some interesting American storylines as well to keep an eye on. Always great to talk sports with you, Brock. Thank you very much for today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Brock Richardson is the host of the neutral zone and our sports chatter here on now with Dave Brown time now to get a check on your national weather forecast. Here's Alex Smythe. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's a mix of sunny clouds with 18 as the high. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's mainly cloudy with showers this morning and up to 4 millimeters expected with 17 as the high. In St. John, New Brunswick, cloudy with rain expected and 19 is the high there. Over to Quebec City, Quebec, it's mainly sunny and a high of 20. In Toronto, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of showers early this morning and a high of 22. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, 
Showers are expected throughout the day and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour there, and 12 is to high. Over to Brandon, Manitoba. It's mainly cloudy with a chance of flurries this morning, which will then turn to possible rain in the afternoon, and 9 is to high. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's sunny but cold with 8 as to high. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain early morning, then it will turn clear in the afternoon with 16 as the high. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly sunny with a high of 17. Over to Whitehorse, Yukon, it's mainly sunny as well, but the high is 15. In Kelowna, BC, sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds and hazy with a high of 23. And finally in Vancouver, BC, it's mainly sunny and that will turn to a mix of sun and clouds with 20 being the high. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Appreciate it. Don't forget, our daily poll is available to you. What is your favorite hobby? And if you select other, please write in your answer in the comments. Is it arts and crafts, music, gardening, or other? Our poll is available on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. and on Twitter at Accessible Media. Coming up after the break, Ramya Muthin is going to be here along with Nisreen Abdelmajid as we have our roundtable discussion led by Alex Smythe. That's next, now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave, who's away today. Time now for our roundtable discussion. Want to welcome in Ramya Muthan from Kelly and Company. Good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Mike. Good to have you here. Nisreen Abdelmajid is here as well. Good morning, Nisreen. Good morning. Happy Thursday. And to you. And we've got Alex Smythe, who is going to lead us in this roundtable conversation. So, Alex, take it away. Yeah, so uh, the past few days I've been off uh, from uh, now with Dave Brown. I've been dealing with a bit of a cold, and it kind of prompted an idea in my head. I, I want to ask uh, each of you, like, when you're dealing with a cold or a flu or you're not feeling well, are there, like, home remedies, foods, drinks, things other than your your medicine that you'll take to make you feel better, to make you, whether it's you think it helps you recover or it just gives you a good feeling, like for myself, Anytime I'm sick, it, I always have to get a Lipton's pack, dry packaged chicken noodle soup. It's never a can. It's never the full, like, Campbell soups or anything like that. It has to be the dry package because, to me, it's always the one that makes me feel better. So I, I want to start with uh, you, Nisreen. Like, do you have any kind of foods or drinks that are your go-to when you're sick? I get you, Alex. The chicken noodle soup is always my go-to because mainly because I'm lazy about it. That's the easiest thing to make. <laughs> um, but also uh, ginger and lemon tea. That was that's a number one thing for us. We always go for ginger and lemon tea. So good, and it feels so much better. And I don't know about you, but since I was young. I feel like we've had this like very weird tradition in our family where whenever somebody gets sick, it doesn't matter what it is. We put Vicks vape uh, <laughs> rub all over. I don't know. Ramia, I know yep. you, you can relate. I right? know. I know. <laughs> yeah. So we put it everywhere and apparently that's magical. 
Ramia, what about you? What uh, what sort of jumps out in your mind? Well, I don't know how magical Vix is, but I just know that in my head, Vix is the uh, option for when you're sick. Like if you have sinuses and stuff, and I'm not even going to talk about what we do with Vix because I feel like Vix is not supposed to be used like this. Anyway, yeah. so <laughs> tea. <laughs> tea is a big one, like you said, Nisreen. Um, I also start taking like zinc and vitamin D and vitamin C just, you know, like all through the year, we're supposed to be taking vitamins and making sure we're um, like consistent with that stuff, but I'm not. But when I'm, a, when I'm sick or when somebody who I'm living with or like a neighbor is sick, I'm like, Oh, oh got to start taking my vitamins. I got to beat the cold. So that's the thing that I do. I'm not a fan of painkillers. So I don't really end up using that just soup and uh, tea and vitamins and zinc. Yeah, I think Alex, you, you hit it on the head with the with the, the packaged chicken noodle soup. It's mm-hmm. a it's a comfort thing. So yeah. so it, it it just makes you feel. And and Nisreen said it. It's quick. It's easy. Right. Water mix whisk done, and you got yourself a big bowl of it. I think back to when I was a kid and things that that. Like my parents, if I was sick, would make Jello, and uh-huh. it was the, the most frustrating thing as a kid when you're really sick, and you, you're you're basically testing yourself to see if you know what kind of foods you can keep down. Mm-hmm. So you're starting with Jello, but it would take so long for the Jello to set that you'd <laughs> be like reaching in and sticking my finger in the bowl in the fridge, and ah, it's not ready yet. And, and get in, in trouble for doing that, of course. Um, but popsicles was the other one right. where it was just great to have. And, and to, that's one to this day. If I'm sick, like I'll call my wife and it'd be like, honey, can you please pick up some banana popsicles for me? <laughs> and she, so, so she's they have great. to be specifically banana oh, popsicles. Oh, the banana popsicles is the way to go yeah. when I'm sick. A hundred percent. I don't eat them any other time. Only when I'm sick, and I love them, and it's just this association I have with I'm sick, I want something that's going to soothe my throat, I want something that's going to be liquid form, banana popsicles is the way to go. Now, also as I've got older, you mean you guys are talking about tea, and that's that's fine. I got no problem with tea, (laughs) but I like to throw a little bit of whiskey in there. Just oh, to get, you have to feel better. You yeah, have to feel better. Exactly. Feel better. Exactly. You need to yeah. sort of relax, take it easy. So, yeah, I like a little bit of uh, lemon tea with a shot of whiskey in there and some honey. Mix in the honey because yes. that that there that's a that's a trick of the trade of uh, of announcers. I can tell you that. Like I have my own stash at the arena. Of honey and lemon tea. Lemon. It's like don't touch that. Yep. that. That's mine. If you touch it, I'll break your, I'll break your fingers. Like <laughs> that is off limits to everybody. Get your own. It's like super important, and and, and that's that's one of my secrets. Well, and for me too. Like I I sometimes go the tea route. I don't always. You know, I I know it's good for me. I always have lemon tea. There's always honey around. But when especially when I'm sick and I don't have that appetite, what I will do is I'll get Gatorade or Powerade, mm. specifically like the blue one, the white one, or the, the purple one. one. Yeah. And the key is you have to dilute it because it's on its own. It's so sugary. It's so powerful. It doesn't help, especially if you have any nausea, but you dilute it like maybe 50% Gatorade, 50% water, top it up with ice. 
And that way you get the electrolytes, you get all the, the good stuff and the sugars and, and get some of that energy, but you're not taking that hit or that punch of the drink right away. Yeah. And uh, side note, it's also very good for, for hangovers or, or after a night of maybe too many whiskeys in, in your uh, teas there, Mike, uh, it helps uh, uh, It helps the next day. Well, thank goodness Gatorade came out with their sugar-free options because that was the biggest drawback was, mm. yeah, you, there's all kinds of benefits to drinking it when you're active, but then you're kicking in so much sugar with the drink that yeah. it, it was it was completely counterintuitive. So not, uh, not a great idea. Uh, thank you very much. Great conversation, great tips there for our audience uh, uh, to, uh, you know, think about next time they're not feeling that great. The cold season is upon us, and it's not going away. So uh, some great ideas there. So big thank you to Alex and to Nisreen for uh, their input here. But I want Ramia to stick around because, Ramia, you're going to tell us what's coming up today on Kelly and Company. That's right. It's me and Brock Richardson hosting the show today, Mike. And we're talking to Fern Lullum, who's going to share a story about Katie Shaw. So she's a teenager in the UK with Ehlers-Dandros Syndrome. Um, and Fern believes that she can really relate and some of the audience can really relate to Katie's story. So she's going to share that with us. And of course, with Thanksgiving coming up around the corner and you already talking whiskey, we're talking toasting traditions with Catherine Valinga, CEO of Zerkova Vodka. She's going to tell us to add vodka to our remedy maybe and we're going to learn more about compass club which is a fully accessible travel guide company in southern ontario doing a lot of great work with accessibility and traveling we're going to talk more about that very nice my uh thanksgiving recommendation cranberry Mm -hmm. wine cranberry wine from the muskoka wine company uh there are a bunch out there but that's the one that i've bought in the past it pairs so well with turkey it's Yes. Unbelievable. So if you can get it's your It's a good year-round on, one, too. It is. It is. Nice and one. It, I remember it, you recommending this last year, and I tried. It was so good. And it's tough to get it this time of year because yes. people have clued in on it. So uh, make mm-hmm. the jump on it if you find it. Ramia, thank you very much. Have a great show. Thanks, Mike. Ramia Muthin from Kelly & Company comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. Don't forget... Today, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time on The Pulse, Joita Gupta is going to chat with Sarah Patel, creator of the Thinking in Color podcast. That's The Pulse that comes your way at 1.30 p.m. on Thursdays, Eastern Time on AMI-audio. The show is also available on your favorite podcast platform. After the break, Marco Flala will be here from Double Tap to share some of the new tech revealed this morning at Google's Pixel event. That's coming up next, now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross, filling in for Dave. Great to have you on the show with us today. We're talking Google now. As we are speaking, Google is presenting new devices at their Pixel 7 event in New York. And joining us to talk more about that is Mark Aflalo, one of the hosts of Double Tap, which airs daily at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. He is in Montreal this morning. Good morning, Mark. Morning, sir. How are you? I am great. Thank you. Um, okay, so this is an event that's been on for roughly an hour or so. Uh, not me, even. Not even? Half hour. 30, you know, 30 half minutes. Hour. Perfect. Yeah. What are your initial impressions in those 33 minutes? 
Well, I mean, a couple things. They've they've already teased the uh, Pixel Watch, which we'll be talking about in a second. They haven't given all the details yet other than that there's a new dome design. It's a round watch with a glass dome on top of it, which gives you this very cool illusion of this infinity edge. So no bezel around the actual display, which is really cool. They've talked about color availability and black, silver, gold, and all stainless steel. A new watch band system that clicks into place instead of what Apple's been using and other companies have been using where it kind of slides into the body itself. This one clicks in to have a really cool seamless design. Of course, multiple watch bands and stuff like that. Um, big focus on privacy this year. They're talking all about how they're using software and hardware combined to make everything more private. Everything they're announcing from some new tablets to the Pixel 7 phones. Um, lots of really cool stuff, but I know you, I know you've got questions, so I'll let you yeah. get to them. <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's talk about devices, right? Yeah. Uh, aside from watch bands and things like that, accessories, but devices, new devices that, uh, that are being introduced. What's sort of jumping out? So obviously the Pixel 7, uh, it's a new 6.3 inch device in terms of screen size. Um, they've really gotten, gotten nice and sleek in the design. There is a camera bump on the back of this on the, on the regular Pixel 7 because there is a pro version. Um, you've got a matte finish and two camera system on the back, 4K front facing camera, which is really cool for selfies. And of course, those people using it for TikTok videos. Um, <laughs> all day battery life is something that they're touting a really, really big. Um, their own processor. This is the second generation of uh, Google Pixel phones. They use their own processor, something they're building in-house, which, again, you know, I talked about privacy. They're really pushing the limits here. They're saying that the processing and the way the hardware and software works is equal, if not greater, to what they're using on their hardware and software in the cloud platform, like on people's servers, which is pretty pretty insane. And then, of course, you know, what stands out is really the Pro model. It's a 6.7-inch screen much brighter, a very thin edge on this display, one little punch, you know, punch hole camera or uh, hole punch camera on the front for the selfie, but four cameras on board of this device. One, of course, is a, like a light, LiDAR almost sensor camera, three main cameras on this, incredible all-day battery life as well because it's bigger. They're able to get a larger battery in there, uh, pro-level camera system. This has a nice, instead of that brushed aluminum design, this has a shiny aluminum design on the camera system itself. Um, it, it's insane. You know, it crashed it. One of the funniest things, uh, you know, they said right off the bat was they made, kind of made fun of without really making fun of Apple's latest devices. They talked about how they've been doing stuff for a very long time. Things like crash detection has been out for three years. Uh, they talked how they were complimented by other people copying their stuff, even though they've had it for like 10 years now. They talked about the first Pixel having an always-on display like seven generations ago. Um, a lot of fun stuff coming out, and it's still ongoing. It's going to be going on for another about 40 minutes. So we're going to, of course, recap everything on Double Tap at noon, but lots of stuff, lots of stuff coming out. Let me sort of go back about, sure. I want to say, probably a dozen years or so. Oh, and, <laughs> and a friend of mine had, like, we were, I, I remember this as if it were yesterday. We were, were sitting around in his backyard. We're all talking cell phones. What do you have? What do you use? What's your cell phone? Now, at the time, I had an iPhone because it was a work phone. And, and I said, well, what do you have? And he says, oh, I, I couldn't afford the, the iPhone. I have a Google phone. And we all kind of went, what? A what? A Google, a Google phone? phone? What is a Google <laughs> phone? And he swore up and down, best phone he'd ever had at that point. What about the evolution of Google and th th that brand 
when it comes to phones. And, and what do you say to people who got in on the ground floor way back when with Google phones and how much it's evolved now? Well, the thing that sets apart a Google branded phone is that it's not like the Samsungs, the HTCs, the Huaweis of the world that get an Android device and they put their own skin on top of it. They add software, they make, they tweak things to kind of make it their own. When you buy it from Google, you get Android out of the box like they intended it to be used. No skins, no bloatware, none of that stuff that gets in the way of the experience. And that's what people really love. They call it the Google vanilla experience because it's just plain Google's Android operating system. Over the years, that focus on software really has become more and more prevalent. Now they're shifting to the point where they're also making a lot of the hardware themselves in terms of the chips, not necessarily the devices themselves. They still farm that out. But they really focus on that software experience and pushing it to the max. When they talk about all the features that come out on Android, they want you to experience that on a Pixel device so you know how they intended it to be used. The best comparison, Mike, I can give you is when Microsoft comes out with a Surface computer. They're not out there to really make a big imprint on the software, on the, on the laptop market. They have tons of partners that will do that for them. They're there to give you a blueprint and say, this is how we intended Windows to run on hardware. Now you take this, go ahead and make it your own. But remember, this is how we intended it to be used. Don't mess with it. So Google's doing the same thing. While they know they have so many partners out there who are using Android, they want to show the world this is how we intended it to be used. And this is how we are showcasing our deep, deep, deep learning and experience in search and how we're implementing it. And you should be doing the same. So I think it's evolved quite, quite well. And I think that anybody who really got into it on a ground level when it did come out, they're the ones who don't really turn back. They're the ones who make fun of the iPhone users when the iPhone comes out with features that they've had for so many years. You know, Apple, when they come out with stuff, they refine it a bit more. So, of course, you've got that battle. But it is an interesting paradox. Right. Um, all right. Back in May, Google announced that they'd be introducing the Pixel 7, the Pixel 7 Pro. Um, what are we talking about as far as differences there between the two models? What's what's a Pixel 7 versus a Pro? So, I mean, the Pro really these days ends up being a better camera system and better processing power because they can fit more into the device, the larger batteries. So you'll get a longer battery life on the Pro. You'll get that extra camera on the back. So those people who buy a phone for the camera or buy a camera for the phone um, will get a better experience on the Pro, which is what, honestly, it's one of the reasons that I get a Pro model of an iPhone. I want the better camera system because I'm using it as my day-to-day -day kind of point-and-shoot camera. So you get that. You've got that. So you've got the three cameras. You get um, a little bit better processing power, more RAM and more memory on board, more battery life because they've got the room for it. And it's a bigger screen. You know, it's a bigger screen, which is not only a good thing for people who just want more real estate, but, you know, think about the accessibility point of view. People with low vision who want to make it bigger. People who are older, like me, who want to make it a little bit bigger on the screen. You know, you have that real estate to go with and you have that extra battery life. I find, you know, this year I'm using an iPhone uh, Pro, but I'm using the smaller version, not the Pro Max. And I'm finding that I'm, I'm the battery dies pretty quick on me and I'm not used to that. So I'm plugging it in more and I'm doing things like that. So there is a little bit of advantage on the Pro models other than obviously just the display and the camera. Yeah, I'm doing the uh, thumb and finger expansion of the screen yeah, a lot right. more nowadays right. <laughs> too. Absolutely, I hear you. Uh, okay, tell me a little bit more about the first ever smartwatch here from Google, this Pixel Watch. You talked about a dome. I'd be worried about smashing that thing, knocking it around. Um, just 
how popular do you think this could be? So it, it's going to be popular because, again, it's another way for people to experience Google Wear OS, which is their operating system for watches. They've always gone with the round design, which is, I think, a very big difference from them and other smartwatch companies. The round design is extremely versatile, and, and it fits a lot on the screen in a very unique way. The dome glass is all made out of sapphire crystal, so you can bash that as much as you want. It's as power, as durable as a Rolex is going to be, or as any other really high-end watch, which is great. Processing power, again, they're using their own processing on board, which means that a lot of their AI and stuff happens on the watch itself and not, doesn't necessarily need to connect to the cloud. So you can use that on the go for things like mapping and workouts and stuff like that. Um, they're still diving into the the actual hardware and the specs and the operating system as we talk about right now. So other than that, I can, you know, the colors, black, silver, and stainless steel, the new band mechanism I talked about at the top, and the round and the dome is about all I can tell you. But you're going to have to tune with the double tap at 12 because they're walking through the entire thing right. um, as we sit here and wait. It sounds very futuristic looking. It always like, does, though. Right? It always sounds futuristic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it just it blows my mind when I think about when I first came on board here at uh, AMI and the first time I ever talked to Mike Agarbo and yep. we were, we talked about wearables at the time. Like that was, that was the term. That was the big thing, wearables. And it was like, what, what is a wearable? And we start talking about a watch that at the time was going to count the steps you take in a day and was going to monitor yeah. your heartbeat. That's Glorify it. Glorify Fitbit, That's right? it. <laughs> That's it. Like yeah. that's all it was doing. And fast forward seven years, and like it, it's just it blows my mind how the technology is, is just constantly changing, and almost like every six months, there's there's something new from Google or from Apple or from Samsung or well, from one of these companies. Like it's just it's mind blowing how rapidly things are yeah. are changing compared to twenty years ago. And you know what? I think software really helps define that because I think a lot of these devices now. Uh, the soft, the hardware is so advanced that they can update software that really bring new features. You don't necessarily need to be buying the new hardware year in and year right. out anymore, which is kind of cool. Always a pleasure to catch up with you, Mark. Thank you very much for this. My and pleasure. we'll be tuned in at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. Looking forward to it. All right. Mark Aflalo, appreciate him dropping by, talking to us about some of the details from the Google event. As it's happening, been going on for about 43, 44 minutes now, and probably, as Mark said, probably about 20 to 30 minutes left in that event. They'll have a full recap for you on Double Tap, which comes your way daily at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. Mark joined us from Montreal. When we come back after the break, Melanie Casanavichus is going to be here. She's going to describe some issues with guide dog access in Nova Scotia. That's next. Now with Dave Brown continues on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave. Uh, Earlier on in the hour, I had a conversation with Brock Richardson in our sports chat talked about a TELUS Canada announcing today that they've joined Tim Hortons and Scotiabank in pulling sponsorship from Hockey Canada. And now we're getting word uh, through uh, Sportsnet that Chevrolet Canada is now pulling their sponsorship as well. Uh, it's uh, Here's a quote from a statement from Chevrolet saying, 
We can confirm that Chevrolet Canada has stepped back from its sponsorship activities with Hockey Canada as we seek more clarity on what specific steps the organization has and will take following the alleged incidents of abuse. We at GM have no tolerance for abuse of any kind and wish to see Hockey Canada return to setting a positive example for all Canadians in all it does. That's Chevrolet Canada GM uh, responding to Sportsnet this morning and uh, that being shared through uh, City News in Vancouver. That's where I'm pulling that information from this morning. But it just uh, gets worse for Hockey Canada from a financial standpoint as this is the fourth major sponsor that pulls their money from Hockey Canada events uh, surrounding the certainly the World Junior Championship, which is their next big signature event happening over the Christmas holidays. Earlier this week, community reporter Louise Levesque Burley shared an experience she had booking a motel on Prince Edward Island that denied her guide dog access. Now, in a similar situation, another one of our community reporters has experienced the same mistreatment and joins us now to talk more about it. Milena Kazanavichus is back with us here on the show. Good morning, Milena. Good morning, Mike. Long time no chat. It has been. It's great to be uh, here with you, reconnecting. Um, I wish it were under better circumstances because this is a story that is just way too common across this country. Can you walk us through your your experience here from a couple of weeks ago? Right. So this this was um, September the fifteenth, and a friend of mine who's also visually impaired and a guide dog user, and myself and uh, my friend's cousin who was sighted, we all uh, attempted uh, to uh, enter a restaurant um, and were um, denied access because we had our guide dogs. Um, you know, Mike, I'd say this is not the only incident. And generally, from my perspective, being a, a guide dog handler of 21 years, I have always managed to resolve the situation. The problem at that particular restaurant was that there was a patron who very loudly and bluntly turned to my friend and myself and had told us to go find another place to eat. The dogs and we were not welcome there. This is a patron, and we were disturbing her lunch. You know, and this is at that point where you kind of lose your diplomacy and your calm. Mm-hmm. And and it's individuals such as that patron that are more dangerous out there in the public right now than the restaurants or venues of any form, shape, whatever the case may be, that they're the, they're the bigger problem. Because I did try to explain to the patron that I had worked on the provincial legislation here in Nova Scotia. There was a law that protected us under the human rights and said, patron, again, uh, no such law. You're making stuff up. Go away. <laughs> How often <laughs> do you find yourself in situations like that, having to very, uh, very vocally uh, and pointedly advocate for your basic human rights? I well, I you know honestly, Mike, I'd say in the last five years it has become quite increasing, uh, particularly here in Nova Scotia. Um, you know, and I hear the stories across the country as well through some of the the groups I, I belong to. So it is be- becoming more increasing. Outright denial to access 
Maybe not as much so um, as just the whole, and I will use this word, harassment, questioning, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'll give an example. So IKEA is one of the biggest culprits here. Every time I go into IKEA to spend my hard-earned AMI dollars, you know, it's an eight-minute process before I can even get into the store because the security there is questioning what kind of a dog is it? Where is its vest? And the, the, here, here lies the other problem right now at this point, at least in Nova Scotia, is that there's confusion between service and guide dogs. Dogs that perform tasks, we all understand this, properly, properly trained and accredited. One wears a vest and guide dogs wear a harness. And people do not understand that in this province whatsoever. So it's a constant, continuous, where is the dog's vest? And when you try to tell them it's it's um it's it's a guide dog, it leads me around. I'm blind. My dog wears a harness. It it's ten minutes before they finally understand. That happens, I would say, on a weekly basis with me because I'm out in the community a lot. And just the other night, two nights ago, actually, Mike, a friend insisted we take Uber. I'm sorry, forgive me. I despise that company, and. I did not want to take Uber. We got in. My friend cited got in. I get in. The conversation starts already. No dogs. The end result of that was the driver shut off the car, stepped outside, started yelling at us. He wasn't going to drive us. I was not going to budge. This was two nights ago. So I'm, I'm pretty beaten down at this point. Um, anyway, he did call the police. The police showed up within 10 minutes and told him what his two options were, a penalty or to drive us home safely. Ask me if that was a comfortable ride home. Well, I was I was going to ask you what was the what did he choose? Um, he chose to drive us home. Yeah, because the, because truly, Mike, you know, people are in need of work, uh, sure. and, and I and I and I will put the blame on management, corporations, companies, this province who in in 2018 promised to do education when more service dogs came on board, thus those wearing vests. And I'm in full support of any properly trained dog, full support, who, who is properly accredited. But their education from the province here went as far as three weeks and that was that and, and nothing else and further. So how do we make it better? How, how, do, how do we make people more? Because listen, there's an expression you you can't fix stupid, right? Um, but you can <laughs> yes. certainly, but you can certainly <laughs> make people more aware, um, so that hopefully they don't sit there and accuse someone who's been involved in making legislation happen that they're making things up because that's just infuriating. Yeah. How do you yeah. how do you do that? How do we make people more aware? Okay. Well, I had a couple of discussions with some of my colleagues and um, also Louis Greco, who's regional um, manager for policy through CNIB. I think what, what needs to happen, one, starting at, at the guide dog schools themselves, not to put more onus upon them. So when the puppies are in training, the puppies that are being trained to be guide dogs are in fact wearing a vest. Therefore, when they're in the venues training, the, the puppies doing all, all of that initial training before they get into harness, I think it would be best if, if the schools also said, once these dogs are trained, they will be wearing a harness. I have a picture of it. Two, I think the province should be taking this on more a, a lot more. Three, I also will put the onus on CNIB. Now, CNIB's come out with stickers to put on the outside of each business that says, 
guide dogs welcome. I think this is a huge misconception and misleading to the general public who don't understand. So and I'll give you an example. If we have a mall with 100 stores and only 20 of these stores have a guide dog sticker welcome here, what do you think the public is going to think? They're going to think it's only 20 stores that are accepting it. This is what has to happen, so on and so forth. My thought on it is, who will pay for this? I'm not sure. Big posters in staff rooms of each business. So in the bathroom of the staff room, where the staff members um, enter and exit the, the venue, and one poster that has a service dog, another poster that has a guide dog, and link those posters in saying, by law, these dogs are permitted in with their handlers in all spaces. Here is a service dog. Here is a guide dog. Not on the outside of each venue, but on the inside where the staff people are in case management forgets to train. Those are my ideas. And, you know, how, how realistic uh, is it to expect that we can get this done, right? I mean, you've you got to get a lot of people on board and, and we've got to, we've got to, be loud about this, right? It's not, it's not just something that, that, that you do on your own. You got to get, you got to get voices together. Well, and, 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 and this is the problem. So, you know, how do we get the voices? I, I don't know. I, I'm, I've been, uh, honestly, I, I guide dog advocacy to me. I thought other people were handling it a lot better and clearly they're not. I, I've sort of swayed away from it and, and done just my own except for the last couple of weeks now, apparently, yet again, because I've been focused on a lot of other advocacy, as as everybody here on the show knows. Um, so how do we get people together? Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't have a full answer for that. I, yeah. uh, how, to, how to engage people more? Um, I, I don't know either. Um, and to get legislation put in, higher penalties, that's a whole process of, you know, three to four years, who's got the energy? Because at the end of the day, and I've had a lot of people come to me and say, business owners, well, this doesn't happen very often. In fact, it does happen often. Um, we, the, those of us who are blind or partially sighted, have full lives. We get home at the end of the day and we've run into these things and we just want to end it. And it's not an easy solution, but it starts with no. conversations like this one. Milena, thank you very much for being here today and sharing your perspective on it. Thanks for the time here. Milena Kazanavichus, have a great day. Joining us from Halifax, she is our community reporter out there. And that is it for now with Dave Brown. Back again tomorrow. Thanks for being here today. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.